Amen, friends. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time before we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, as has been confessed by several already today, and as we have all agreed, we come to you and stand before you, not in our own merit or our own righteousness, but we come to you in the name of Jesus. We come standing on his merit, and we come because you are a gracious God, and we have been called by your name. So we pray, Lord, that you would come now by your spirit, that you would Fill me as the preacher of your word so that I might be helpful to these dear people who have gathered here today. And we pray for all of us that you would pour your spirit out on us so that this time, as we look to your word, would be profitable. We pray that our faith would be sustained and strengthened. We pray that we would be confronted with who you are in your word. We pray that we would be reminded and confronted with the truth about ourselves and we pray that we would find joy and rest and peace as we behold the Lord Jesus from your word. So Father, come now and build your church. Come now and do your good work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I don't often do this, but this week on social media, I posted our order of service. So like the order of service we're using today, I took a picture of it and put it on like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. Uh, again, not something I normally do, but I just like, hey, I'm going to do this this week. I got a few comments on it, like even on Instagram in particular, a number of comments from guys that I know in ministry. Some of the, the comments were about like execution, you know, like geeky pastor stuff, like do you guys pass a plate? Um, do you take the Lord's Supper every week? Things like this. And I replied to some of that. Some were, you know, poking fun about the 1689 London Baptist Confession or whatever. But then there was one brother, one guy, he's a good friend of mine. He's a good pastor in Virginia. And he said this. He said, beautiful. Praying for you, Justin. Give them good news. Now, I admit, I, when this happened and I was sitting there, read this brother's comment, knowing him, I saw him not that long ago, I was a little bit overcome by it. Just like, in part because of the relationship I have with this guy, but in part because of his encouragement. Like, brother, I'm praying for you. Give them good news. I thought, amen, like that's what we need, right? It's what we need every time we come here. Every time we gather like this, we all need to hear good news. This particular friend of mine is a very thoughtful, very compassionate pastor who I know gets that too. Like, brother, we need to give our people good news every time we show up to church. I've said things like this before. Pastors are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? Ephesians chapter four. That's why pastors exist. And as the main preaching pastor of CBC, I understand that my main job in terms of that equipping is to hold Christ out to us from the Bible every single Sunday. So my job is to give you, give us good news regularly. And I understand that the central piece of equipping the saints is to give the saints Christ. And so that's what we're going to do today. So we do every time we come. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do open them up to Mark chapter two. We are in the third of a number of sermons in Mark's gospel. We have made our way through chapter one in the first two messages. And today we will be picking up in chapter two and verse one. And we'll be looking all the way through verse 17 of Mark chapter 2. Before we go any further, uh, I'm going to read God's word for us. I believe the words will also be up on the screen in addition to any copy that you might have in front of you. So if you did not bring a Bible with you today, don't sweat it. You will still be able to follow along with us. Listen now to the word of God. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So truth in advertising, I do not have a very clever outline for us today. This is like my once every two months, once every three months plug for helpfulness over cuteness. I hope that this is good for you and us as we make our way through the text. You can see as plainly as I do that these 17 verses break down into two big sections. The first 11 verses, we have the account of the paralytic. And then in verses 13 through 17, we have the basically the party at Levi's house, at Matthew's house. So we're going to look at those two big sections. We're going to make our way through verses 1 through 11, and then I'll make an observation and a reflection and then we'll make our way through verses, excuse me, 1 through 12, and then verses 13 through 17. We'll make our way through those, and then I'll offer a reflection there. So I hope that that's of some help to you. We're going to look to the text now. Verses 1 through 12, the account of the paralytic. If you're taking notes, you can put that heading above it, if that's useful to you. In the first two verses, we see that Jesus is back in Capernaum. He was there earlier, in earlier verses in chapter 1. He's preaching the word to the people. And there's a big gathering. We see that. Many were gathered together, verse 2, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus is preaching to the people. And then in verses 3 through 5, there's a part of this encounter, a part of this account that is familiar to many. Many have heard this story. There are four men. They come carrying a paralytic on a bed, so kind of almost like a, a stretcher, like a cot kind of thing. Four guys, one in each corner, carry their friend who's paralyzed, can't move. They can't get into the door of the house because of the crowd. So we know the story. If you're familiar with how houses would have been built in this era, there would have been steps going up to the roof that would have been flat. And there would have been like branches and clay and those kinds of things laid over the top of just cross beams, cross members on the roof. So the men carry their paralyzed friend up on the roof and they start to make a hole in the roof so they can lower their friend down into the midst of where Christ is speaking. So that's all happening in verses three and four. And then we get this amazing thing in verse five. Jesus, when he sees their faith, and by their faith, I would understand that to mean the four men who are carrying the guy but I would also understand that to include the paralytic, their faith, right? All of them. When he sees their faith, he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. 
This is remarkable. I mean, on a number of levels. One pretty cool thought about this is that the paralyzed man and his friends are coming to Jesus for physical healing. That's the objective. But then Jesus is going to address this man's most fundamental need, far deeper need than just physical healing. Christ is going to address his need to have his sins forgiven and to be cleansed from unrighteousness. The statement in and of itself, though, is remarkable. When Christ looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. He calls him son. That's not nothing, biblically. It's a big deal. Son is a term of endearment. And it's also the language of adoption. Right? So we should be, okay, like son, child of God, right? He also tells the man that his sins are forgiven. That is scandal. The reaction of those around makes that clear. Let's put our eyes on verse six. Some of the scribes were sitting there. They're in the audience. So these are experts on the law, right? So these guys would have been working alongside the Pharisees. So these men would have been experts in the X's and O's, the nuts and bolts of the law. And not just the law, the Torah, but also the the hedge of other commands that the Pharisees had put around the law. They're experts. They know their stuff. And we see in verse 7, they're questioning, why does he talk like this? How can he say this? Your sins are forgiven. He's blaspheming, they say. To blaspheme is to slander God, right? It's to lie about God. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, now, we're often really hard on the Pharisees and the scribes and others when we read the Gospels. It's understandable. But their question is the right question. Like, they're asking the right thing. In this context in this setting, this man who's a teacher, he's a rabbi, okay, preaching, teaching the word of God, the scripture, looks at a man and says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, bro, you can't do that. You can't say that. Only God can do that. That's not a horrible instinct, right? You get that. So their question is the right question. Who is this man and how can he speak this way? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Answer, nobody. Only God can. So Jesus, verse 8. Jesus perceives that all this is going on internally with these guys. Remember, he he knows what's in man. John chapter 2, right? He doesn't need anybody to tell him what's going on inside men. He knows. Okay, so he perceives that all of this is going on. So he asks the scribes, why do you question these things in your heart? Why are you wrestling like you are? He goes on. He's going to make the point quite powerfully. He says, which is easier, verse nine, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now the answer to that is, it's much easier to say Your sins are forgiven. Why? It's because that cannot be empirically verified, right? It can't be visually verified. Like I could stand here, I could stand here and just pronounce sins forgiven, and then we could have an argument over whether that's accurate or not, because nobody can prove that, right? So that's what Jesus is saying. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but in order to demonstrate that that's legit, I'm going to do something else. He goes on. Right? If he tells the paralytic, rise, take your bed and walk, and that doesn't happen, he outs himself as a fraud. So he goes on in verse 10. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself, that's what he most often calls himself, the Son of Man, that's a reference to the divine son of man from Daniel chapter seven. 
This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus is the divine son of man. So he says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, that's Mark's interjection. He said this to the paralytic. Verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then you see verse 12, just like I see it happens. The dude gets up and walks. Everybody is wigging out. I mean, understandably so. They're glorifying God. They're saying, we've never seen anything like this. Yeah, no kidding. So what is Jesus doing? What's he doing in this whole encounter? He's saying, look, I'm going to do this impossible thing. I'm going to tell a paralyzed man to rise, pick up his bed and walk and go home. I'm going to do this impossible thing to show you who I am. I've made this unbelievable claim that this man's sins are forgiven. And in order to vindicate myself and to vindicate and demonstrate that that claim to forgive sins is legit, I'm going to heal this paralyzed man. That's the purpose of the healing. Like the healing is awesome. The healing in and of itself is amazing and is mind-blowing. And it's great for this man's life. I mean, my goodness, right? To be healed from paralysis. The healing, as good as it is though, is not the point of what Christ is doing. The point, like definite article, is that he is the son of man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the point. So an observation from these first 12 verses. I've already been making them, but I'm just going to make one pointedly here. The observation is this. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, you'll notice, invariably looks for faith. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, invariably looks for faith. You can think of even the, the encounter with the Roman centurion, right, who has a, a servant who's sick. And he tells Jesus, like, I know, like, I've got a servant who's sick, and Christ is going to go with him to his home. And he says, no, 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 you, you shouldn't come in, in my home. I think the man even understands in that context that he's a Gentile, Christ is a Jew. Don't come in my home. If you just say the word, I know that he'll be healed because I'm a man in authority. And when I tell people who are under my authority, do something, they do it. So I know if you say that this man, my servant will be made well, I know that it'll happen. And Jesus marvels at what? This man's faith. He says, not even in Israel have I seen such faith. Jesus does invariably look for faith. And we'll think about this more in a minute. It's when he doesn't see faith and it's when he sees people who are confident in themselves, that's when he has an entirely different posture towards them. We'll think about that. So the text says this in verse five. I mean, just put your eyes back on that. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven by faith. Huh. Friends, the Bible is consistent throughout. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's a consistent message that men are saved, are redeemed, are counted righteous before God by promise, not law, by faith and not works. We can think even about the story of Abraham, right? The promise God makes to him, Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. Paul picks that up in the book of Galatians, how the promise came before the law came. And so the law that came later would not make void the promise. It's always been by promise, not by law. It's always been by faith, not by works, that men would stand before God. The Bible is shockingly consistent. Faith in the promises of God realized in Christ has always been the vehicle through which God's people have been declared righteous. 
So that's an observation on those first 12 verses. Now just a, a brief reflection as well. Only God can forgive sin. And that forgiveness comes to us through Christ alone and is offered to us by Christ alone. Say that again. Only God can forgive sin. And in particular, that forgiveness comes to us through Christ alone and is offered to us by Christ alone. So in other words, only Jesus can rescue sinners. Why is that the case? I would say it's because one of who he is and two, because of what he did. That's simple. Because of who he is, because of what he did, only Jesus can rescue sinners. Who is he? This is where the Bible and theology, it matters for us to understand that Christ is both truly man and truly God. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is truly a man to be our representative. He's a man to die for men. He's a man so that his perfect life can be counted to men. And he's also truly God in that he is sinless, spotless without blemish, so that he can be the perfect, unblemished sacrifice for sin. He's truly God in that he is infinite in his divinity to bear the wrath of the eternal God against all of our sin. He's truly God in that even as he says in this text, he has authority to offer forgiveness of sin. But he's also the only one who can rescue sinners because secondly of what he did, what he accomplished. We talk about these things on the regular and we need to hear them on the regular. He made atonement for sin. God is a just God. He's a good God. He's holy. He deals with wickedness. He would not be a good God any longer if he did not deal with evil. If he gives evil a pass, he's no longer the God of the Bible. He's no longer perfect. So justice needs to be satisfied. Atonement needs to be made. If any human being who's fallen, and that's all of us, is ever going to dwell with God. Christ accomplished that. He did it once and for all. There's no need for any other sacrifice to ever be made. That's the mind blow. Like you're telling me that one act of sacrifice throughout the entire history of redemption has done it all. Yes. He made propitiation. This is another big word, right? He made propitiation for our sins. So not only was justice satisfied, not only did he make atonement, make it right, he also satisfied the righteous wrath of God against sin. So God not only requires justice, he is rightly angry against evil. God is a person, not just a force, right? He feels, he loves, he hates. God hates evil. Praise be to his name, right? And so his indignation against evil, against the evil of his people whom he would save needed to be satisfied. And Christ did that too. And that too is over. It's done once and for all, man. The priests daily were making sacrifices. This is what the writer of the Hebrews says. Every time I quote Hebrews, I'm like, man, I can't wait to preach this book. It's what the writer of the Hebrews says, though. The priests were daily making sacrifices. It was ongoing, man, constant. But then Christ shows up on the scene. And once and for all, he makes perfect atonement. He is perfectly satisfying all of God's requirements for all those who are being sanctified. And it's so, the work is so over that he did it and then he sat down because there's nothing left to be done. But in addition to the atonement and the propitiation piece, there's his perfect life that we rejoice over. God is a just God. He has indignation against evil and he also gave a law that's perfect and holy. And he requires 
perfect fulfillment of it. Do this and live is not just an empty promise. I reward those who do good. It's not just a cute saying. I punish those who do evil. He means it. So a perfect righteous life is necessary. And so Christ lived that perfect life as a truly human being so that by faith in him, that perfect record is counted as your record. That's astonishing. All of the wrong I've done wiped away. All of the wrath I deserve taken from me. A perfect record counted for my absolutely jacked up record. He fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements. He died in our place. He laid his life down. He was dead in the ground. On Friday night and Saturday and on Sunday morning, he got up. What was that about? His sacrifice, first of all, was vindicated. The father looks upon it and says, son, it's enough. It's over. It's done. But in addition to that, in his resurrection, we have been united to Christ by faith. We too will be resurrected in a resurrection like his. He triumphed over sin. We have already in Christ been raised to walk in newness of life. We have been delivered from the dominion of sin in Christ because he defeated it when he got up from the dead. He also defeated the grave. Every one of us is perishing. He conquered death for us. The death of death and the death of Christ as the great work by John Owen goes. He conquered hell for you and me. And because he has done all of that, he has met our greatest need. He has met our need to be forgiven of sin, to be found righteous, and to have resurrection. He's done it all. Because he's done it all, he is the only one who can rescue sinners. It's because of who he is and because of what he's done. He's the only savior of the world. If anyone else, if anyone else were to pronounce sins forgiven, it would be blasphemy. By that I mean, I'm standing here today and pronouncing sins forgiven. I think you know what I mean. But if I said, trust in me and your sins are forgiven, that's blasphemy for anybody but Christ to say. For him to make the pronouncement is good and right and awesome. For him to make that pronouncement, your sins are forgiven, is honestly why the world was made. God made the world, ordaining the fall, knowing that he would redeem it, knowing that Christ would come. So for Christ to show up on the scene and pronounce the forgiveness of sins, in one sense, is the point of history. It evokes praise. It evokes worship. That's the point of verses 1 through 12. So let's turn our attention now to verses 13 through 17. I'm going to entitle this The Calling of Levi, though we could call this the, the throwdown at Levi's house. I don't even know. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's like a conversion party, right? It's what it is. He's converted and he's going to celebrate. I've come to know Jesus and I'm going to throw a party with my friends. So we're going to talk about that together. Let's look at these verses again. Just make sure we understand what's going on. Verse 13, Jesus, he goes out again. He's beside the, the sea, the Sea of Galilee. All the crowd was coming to him, and he again is teaching. He's always teaching. He passes by as he's making his way. He passes by a tax booth, and he sees a man named Levi. And we also know from other gospel accounts that Levi is also known as Matthew. Okay? So Levi equals Matthew in your mind. Levi is sitting there at the tax booth. Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. All that happens in verse 14. Just a brief note about Levi and his trade, his vocation, his profession. He's a tax collector. Many in the room may know this. The tax collectors in this context were seen as dishonest people. They were seen as kind of like sharks, you know, like out to basically take advantage of those that they could take advantage of for their own gain. And they were also generally seen as traitors because they were working for the Roman government. 
They were working for a pagan government and taking money from Jews. Not good. Another observation just about the calling of all the disciples. So we thought about the calling of Simon and Andrew, James and John last week. And then even the calling of Levi here this week. The way that the calling of the disciples is described is sort of astonishing in how unastonishing it is. It's like Jesus just looks at somebody and says, hey, follow me. And they just get up, leave everything and go. Point of that is that you can see the hand of God in it. Right? It's just, it's unremarkable in the way that it's stated. It's just like, hey, follow me and okay. It's not, it's not different in one sense than when you were converted. Like God said, hey, live, follow me. And you're like, I don't know anything for real. I don't really know much, but like, I know that I, I want Christ. I know that I need him. So I'm going to go. But then in verses 15 through 17, we see that the scene shifts. It shifts to a get-together. I think it's okay to call this a party. I mean, there's eating and there's drinking and there's those kinds of things going on. People hanging out, reclining at table together. So we see that Jesus reclines at table in Levi's house and many tax collectors and sinners are there hanging out with Jesus. Again, tax collectors and sinners is just, that phrase is just kind of meant to say bad people, like not good company, Sinners, on the one hand, would have been seen, particularly by the Pharisees, as people who did not maintain strict adherence to the law as they saw it. Those are sinners. We're righteous in that we are strictly adhering to the law and this hedge, these traditions that we put around the law. We're adhering to that. Anybody not adhering to those things is a sinner. So tax collectors and sinners are guests at the party because Levi is friends with those kinds of people. The scribes of the Pharisees were told in verse 16, when they see what Jesus is doing, the fact that Christ is just hanging out with these kinds of people, they ask some of Christ's disciples, they say, why is he doing that? Like, what's he doing? And in their minds, he's a rabbi. He's a teacher. Like, it is not appropriate for him to hang out with such as these. It's not what you do. The scribes and the Pharisees would never be caught kicking it with these people, right? So they're really concerned that Christ either somehow doesn't get it and or he's compromising his ministry by hanging out with these people. Christ, verse 17, here's the objection. Jesus heard it. He said to them, the ones who objected, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That's true. And he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those are great words. Those are good news kind of words, like Ron said earlier. So I want to spend the rest of our time, friends, essentially reflecting on primarily verse 17. This, the words of Christ, those who are well don't need a physician. Those who are sick need a physician. I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. So this is one of those times where I'm very mindful of preaching a sermon series through the Gospels, that in one sense, we've got 22 sermons in Mark, Lord willing. You're going to get 22 sermons where the point unashamedly of the sermon is that Jesus is the Christ, the only Savior of the world. Trust him. That's going to be the main point for 20-something weeks, so keep coming. Reflection, just Christ's words in verse 17. He did not come for the righteous. And by that he means, we can take this, just this understanding from even the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the Bible. It's not that he is saying there are some people who are righteous in and of themselves and don't need him, don't need a Savior. It's not what he means. When he says, I did not come for the righteous, he is talking about for those, he did not come for those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. He did not come for those who even think that they have the ability to achieve righteousness. So it's two different kinds of people, right? Some that are already trusting in themselves that they are righteous. Christ didn't come for them. And then also people that might acknowledge, well, hey, I'm not perfect, but I can get there. I can get to the standard. I can achieve it. Like I've got flaws, but I think that if I keep working at this thing, I can achieve righteousness. 
Christ didn't come for those people either. I'm struck in reading the Gospels like over and over again by Christ and how he interacts with people. It is not one size fits all. Like it'll it'll blow your mind if you go through the Gospels thinking that anything that Christ says is gospel, you will be warped out of your frame. Because a lot of what Christ says in interacting with people during his earthly ministry is actually law. He's speaking to them in terms of law, what God requires. In particular, when he encounters people who are trusting in themselves or who think they can achieve what God requires, he blows that up by dumping the full weight of the law on their conscience. So you have to have your antennas up for that. We're we're going to think about that a lot through the Gospel of Mark. I'm just making that observation right now. He is, on the other hand, though, so when he encounters people that are confident in themselves and think they can be righteous, his posture is this. It's law. It's different than we might expect. It's very confrontational. But then we also see this side of him where he is incredibly compassionate and tender toward other people. Well, who are they? He is compassionate and tender toward those who come to him in need, who come to him in particular knowing that they're in need, who come to him not trusting in themselves, but looking to him as the only one who can provide what they need. His posture is very different. John Calvin thought that we find wisdom in life through what he called double knowledge. That is, that double knowledge is knowledge of God and ourselves. So if we're going to gain understanding, if we're going to have life, it's through this kind of dual understanding of God and us, especially as we view those things in stark contrast. We rightly understand ourselves in light of God. So it's, Good for us. Let's talk honestly about ourselves for just a minute. This whole principle here that Christ says, I've come for people who are sick and I've come for people who are sinners. Let's talk about us. We are born, as we've thought about already in our service today, we are born in a state of sin, a condition called sin. So before sin is ever in action, it's a state. It's a condition. We inherited it from our first parents. This is what it means to be in Adam. All of the miseries that we experience are associated with that condition of sin. Everything that I'm saying right now is true for those who haven't been born again. And it is also true still in measure for the redeemed because indwelling sin, like our corrupt nature is still a part of us. We still carry around the old man, the flesh, right, is what the scripture will call it. We are, for those who are redeemed, we have our inner man, the spirit, the regenerate born again part of us that wages war against that old man, right, indwelling sin. So when we talk about a condition of sin, it's all people And the redeemed, we still have that, though we have been born again. All men, the Bible says, are dead in sin. That's how serious our condition is. So in one sense, I mean, Christ could have said, I didn't come for those who are alive, but dead. I mean, spiritually speaking, because that's what we are. We are defiled in every respect. So when we use that language of total depravity, we don't mean utter depravity. It's not as bad as it could possibly be. But it's total in that every aspect of your person is tainted by sin. It's total in that sense. We are defiled in our physicality, right? Our biology is broken. It's fallen. It's corrupted. Our hearts, our minds, our wills, corrupted. A virus has been downloaded. And so we experience Miseries of all kinds. Like you know that's true. Deep down, you know that's true. There are good times because God is good. And there are good things because he's gracious. And 
if you're honest and aware, you know it nags at you that there is a, a deep-seated brokenness in here. It's not as it should be. You know that. Being born, as we said, in this state of sin, this condition, the virus is downloaded. That's what then produces all of the sinning. It produces sinful behavior, sinful thinking, sinful desires. Yes, desires can be sin, contrary to what the world may think. The argument in the world goes, well, if, it, if you desire it naturally, then it must be okay. Not in a Genesis 3 world. In a Genesis 3 fallen world, the way things are is no longer the way things ought to be. So just because we have a desire doesn't mean it's right. Because our desires are corrupted. We break God's law like we think about regularly. We've never actually kept a single commandment that he gave. Really kept it. So, in sum, we are, we are a train wreck. I mean, as we stand before God. Like, to say broken is fine. That's a popular word. I use it. But I don't know that it does our situation justice, to be honest with you. Like, we're far more than broken. We're utterly bankrupt and ruined. To use Christ's analogy, we are terribly and terminally sick. And left to ourselves, there's no cure. No cure. Okay, so here's the good news, right? Like, that's the, that's the bad piece. That's the, okay, like, let me stare that in the face and own it. The great news is this. Look at what Christ says. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the great news, that Jesus came for such as us. He came for the sick. He came for the unclean. He came for the unworthy. As we sing here sometimes, the only thing that Jesus requires is for you to feel your need of him. He came for Wretches like us who are lost and ruined by the fall. There's a verse in Romans chapter four, a couple of verses that read this way. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Those four words God justifies the ungodly are massive in their importance. Like, let that sink in for a minute. God justifies the ungodly. That's different. You realize that's different from any other religion. And you realize that that is different from many things that call themselves Christian. Seriously. I mean, exhibit A Roman Catholicism, where you cooperate with God. You cooperate with God so that you might be saved. You cooperate with his grace and you hope it will go well. No, I mean, that's not what the scripture says. God justifies the ungodly. This matters a ton. Like verse 17 makes no sense. I came for people who are sick. I came for sinners. If what this is about is, hey, improve yourself, do well enough, and you'll be with God forever. There is a lot of teaching out there that effectively says that you will be justified because you have been sanctified. Listen, hear me out. There's a lot of teaching that says, effectively, you will be justified, declared just, because you have grown in holiness. Friends, I'd, I'd die for this. I'd stake my ministry on it. That is not gospel. That is no good news at all. That is salvation by works. The reality, biblically, is that you will be sanctified because you have been justified. Do you understand the difference? You will not be justified because you've been sanctified. You will be sanctified because you have been justified. He will conform everyone 
of us into the image of his son. He will complete the good work that he started. The Holy Spirit of God will do it in all of those who have been justified. The gospel is not a message. I mean, from the lips of Christ himself in terms of who he came for, the gospel is not about a message of being the kind of person that God would be happy to save in the first place. It's not a message where like, hey, work on yourself so that you are progressively more acceptable in God's presence, and then maybe he'll be happy to save you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not a message that contains anything about what you need to do at all. The gospel is a message about what Jesus did. That's why we take great offense at the language when people will say, well, as the church, we need to do the gospel. Or as the church, we need to like live the gospel. One person did that. Christ lived the gospel. Christ did the gospel. We can live in it. We can live under it. We can live in light of it. We can't live it. He did The good news is completely and only about what Jesus has done for us, for those of us who are sick and for those of us who are sinners. So as we conclude our time, serious question. You're like, okay, brother, we've come here again today and we've had Christ held out to us. We've thought about who he is and what he did and all these wonderful things. Like, why does that matter? I mean, I hope you have reasons already in your mind, but why does that matter? There are lots that could be said. Let's just think for a moment. There will come times, like maybe you're in one of these times right now. If not, it's coming. There will be times when, as the hymn says, all around your soul gives way. There will be times when tears and sorrow and heartbreak are your portion. There will be times as we also see, when you're in the valley and you're like, honestly, I see no earthly good at all. There will be times, or here, here, this is real, there will be times when your love for God is cold. Your love for others is cold. There will be times when your joy is low, like it's at a two. There will be times when your zeal is nowhere to be found. And like as much as you want to muster it up, you're like, I, I got nothing. There will be times in your life when you're not looking around or looking at yourself and just seeing fruit pop up all over the place. There will be those seasons where you're like, man, I, I just don't know if any fruit is being produced. There will be times when the battle against sin is more intense. Like the idea that the battle against sin just kind of continually gets easier in the Christian life is insane. It's not biblical. We do grow. We grow. And the battle might be more intense in 10 years than it is right now. It might be. And in the midst of that intense battle, you may find seasons where my battle against sin and my fighting against my corruption is not going nearly as well as I want it to. So the question, brothers and sisters, is where is your hope in those times? That's why this matters. It's easy to be hopeful when you're crushing it. When you're looking around and you're thinking, oh man, I'm doing great. Like I'm growing a ton. My affections are just stirred. Like there's this roaring fire in my heart of love for God and neighbor. Like I just sort of float down the stairs every morning to like read my Bible and pray. And it's just awesome, right? It's so easy to like get our eyes off of Christ in those moments, honestly, in a way that's terrible for us and hope in how we're doing. So even that hope is diluted, but I think the point is made in that it, it's easier for us when things are going well to feel hopeful. But if our hope is in anything related to us or our circumstances and how it's going, when the bottom falls out, your hope falls with it. Where is your hope in those dark, deep, sorrowful times? It's where it's always been. 
in Christ. He has atoned for our sin and satisfied God's wrath. He is our righteousness. He is our assurance and our security. In the old hymns, he's referred to as our surety. S-U-R-E-T-Y. Meaning the, the one who guarantees. The one who makes certain our standing and our place. Jesus now and ever is our plea. That's the point. That he came for such as you and such as me. It is his work, not our works, that's the rock under our feet. And it is his love for us, not our feelings toward him, that is the steadfast anchor of our souls. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that Jesus did not come for the righteous. We thank you that he came for people like us who are sick and who are sinful. We praise you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ and what he has done in our place. We pray that you would use the preaching of your word and even the Lord's table as we now turn our attention to it to drive the truth of what Christ has done deep into our hearts. We pray that you would use your word and you would use the table to put rock under our feet. We pray that we would feel today in our bones that Christ and his righteousness is the steadfast anchor of our soul. We can't produce that in ourselves, Father. We pray that you would come by your spirit and do that. Continue to minister to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.